from the author of the book by the same name. It's the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast with Mark McRae. Welcome to the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast. My name is Mark McRae and I'm joined by the awesome Dan Klink. And today we're going to be discussing the Smurf Syndrome, a tiny trend. A tiny, tiny trend. Smurfs, snorks, we're going everywhere, people. This is uh, definitely a get yourself uh, get yourself some popcorn, have a seat, take your shoes off. This is going to be a good one. So this Smurf syndrome, this tiny trend, goes back much further than 1980s Saturday morning television. Yeah, so I was pleasantly surprised that there were tiny characters dating all the way back to the 1950s. Yeah, right. Now, I had heard that, you know, there was an earlier version of a Smurfs animated cartoon, right. but I couldn't find evidence of this anywhere, really. Um, you know, sure. usually there is some type of version, scratched up version or, or a restored version that you can find somewhere. And you would you think know, on YouTube, certainly with a name like the Smurfs, where you'd be able to find something out there anything out there archived right. uh well you know and all of this uh, this is this was all coming out of europe in belgium and also in the uk they seem to be doing their own thing right by creating these tiny interesting characters and how they interact with regular sized people in in the real world you know the right. smurfs is sort of live in a magical forest and you also get the impression that they may live in the past right because there isn't a lot of technology happening. Right, right. It seems um, to be a, a fantasy you know, realm. Right. Let me uh, let me ask you this. What would you consider ground zero, if you will? The spark, the beginning of this, this tiny trend. I would have to say um, ground zero would have to start with the borrower's uh, book that started back in 1952 in the UK. I mean, this was a huge, successful book. And it sort of uh, set the stage for little people interacting with big people. Right. And so you have this family of tiny people who are living in the house of the big people, and they are relying on these big people in order to survive. Right. And I hate to say it, it kind of reminds me of uh, when, unfortunately, when you have pests in your oh. home, like roaches. <laughs> right. And hoping that a crumb falls on the floor, and that's like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right. You know, for a roach. But it's an interesting idea, and it kind of makes me wonder if the author of this franchise, the uh, borrowers, thought about, you know, maybe he had a bug infest infestation in his home and just wondering if you know, right. i don't sweep and clean up <laughs> yeah right <laughs> these yeah. these little buggers are gonna keep surviving yeah right right and, and you know that opens up uh questions about evolution uh like mm-hmm. okay so if the borrowers subsist on borrowing from from humans regular sized humans has there always been that parasitic relationship throughout history like throughout their the evolutionary history <laughs> You know, right? Yeah. What? Uh. Yeah. See, they don't teach that in schools in Kansas. That's <laughs> that's a little too. It's a little too Darwin there. Definitely. So yeah. So that really started the trend, and I and I feel like that book, you know, may have influenced other franchises. You know, I I, I definitely cannot 
tie the borrowers to the Smurfs, but, you know, they all kind of showed up around the same time, even though they're some years apart. You know, you have one franchise starting in 1952, and then you have the other one starting in 58, and, you know, again, in in Europe. Right. So... In 1958, that would be uh, Les les Schramps, Le... Le... How do you pronounce it? <laughs> Don't ask me. I'm not sure. The Smurfs. I didn't take French. <laughs> yeah. The Smurfs, 1958. Yeah, the, the Smurfs, right. That would be the English pronunciation. But, you know, I thought you were asking me about the French pronunciation. No, no we, we got people for that. I, <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank God. Le Strumpf. So, yeah, um, it starts out, the Smurfs starts out as a, as a comic franchise. And it was created by an artist named Peo. Peo. <laughs> and his, which was a pen name. His real name was Pierre Colifer. Okay. This all happened around 1958. And it was a very successful comic book franchise, which would later lead to a Smurfs animated movie, which seems to have been 10 animated shorts. That were created between 1961 okay. and 65 that were sort of uh, combined in this black and white. 87-minute uh, film, kind of, uh, right. right, a compilation of all of them. Adventure des Stumpfs. I would love to see what, what, what the animation looks like, what the character design looks like. and Can we find this? Is, are there, is there any evidence of this out there? Yeah, supposedly German copies with Dutch si- subtitles are known to exist. Okay. If a company were to put these out on DVD, I think that animation historians would have a field day. There was another movie, we'll get to in a minute, that certainly right. confused me, but this predates that by a good 13 years. This is this is these are some deep smurf dives here, people. This is this is why you keep coming back to the best Saturdays of our lives podcast. We're going mm-hmm. double deep with the smurfs. No idea went back this far if you can find this movie let us know yeah yeah definitely yeah any information any information <laughs> about yeah missing <laughs> yeah put it on a milk carton yeah missing yeah please, yeah, please contact us. <laughs> you're right <laughs> <laughs> and so finally in 1967 the trend actually comes to the u.s with the creation of the littles book right which is um, which features a family, you know, very similar to the UK version of the borrowers, right. where you have this tiny combination of, you know, humanoid with some mouse-like features right. who live in a house owned by the big family. Right. And this book sells really well in the U.S. and then will later become a successful animated series, which we'll talk about a little later. That, that's a deep cut. That goes back 1967. You know, we don't see right. the Littles on Saturday morning for 15, uh, 20, close to 20 years. Right. So it took a while. Yeah. The the Littles, like you said, mouse ears, they're not quite human, uh, whereas the borrowers were. It's like the Littles didn't copy the borrowers, but they definitely borrowed from the borrowers. You know, <laughs> we, we, we start seeing the trend. Oh, yeah. We start seeing the trend. The first, Maybe the first example of the trend beginning to feed off of itself. For sure, because, you know, I wonder if the author of The Littles was somehow inspired by what was going on in the European market, in the UK and the Belgian market with these different tiny franchises. Right. 
You know, so it's, it's really interesting. And then, of course, the trend continues. The borrowers get a live action TV movie. The borrowers are back 21 years after the book. Yeah. You know, this was one that I missed. I was watching a lot of television. I never, never saw this. Never heard of this one. Never saw it. But as I like to remind people who are listening, back in the late 60s, early 70s, most people only had one television in their home. And most of the time, at nighttime or in primetime, adults were in control of what you watched. Yeah, mom and dad dictated what was going on. Exactly. And so maybe for that particular night... Well, let me ask you, Dan, do you remember this movie? You mean the live action, The Borrowers TV show? Yeah. I've never heard of it. You, you're, you're, you. I'm, I'm trusting you on this, Mark. I've, uh, you're the first oh. I've ever, I've <laughs> never, never, never heard of it. Yeah, I, I didn't either. But I'm thinking maybe we both missed it because maybe our parents had control of the television. Yeah. That particular night, and knowing how my parents were, they probably wouldn't have watched that movie. No, this, this got past both of us. And speaking of how did I miss that topics. The Smurfs and the Magic Flute from 1976. La flute a six trompes. At least in this particular case, there was a legitimate reason why I missed this movie. Yeah, because I, I was I it. was surprised that you didn't. Uh, I felt I I felt rather proud actually, being being able to stump <laughs> the great the great Mark McRae. How did this one get past yeah. you? All right. Well, first of all, when it came out, it was only released in. Uh, Europe. I mean, in that, you know, same Belgium market. And by the time it was released in the US, sometimes I watched the Smurfs and sometimes I didn't. Right. And when this Smurfs and the Magic Flute actually came to the US market, I totally missed it. And uh, I was like, what? There was a movie? When? No, yeah, right? You're like, I, I don't know, Dan. I don't know. Are you sure? I think you might be confused, pal. No, this this movie confused the hell out of me because you had, you had the Smurfs, uh, NBC, Saturday mornings. Uh, and by that time, it was, uh, it was also the show was in syndication after school. And then, like on, the, on a random Saturday or Sunday, and on a different local affiliate, that was running the Smurf, the syndicated episodes of the Smurfs, two in the afternoon on a Sunday. The Smurfs, everybody, come watch the Smurfs movie, Smurfs and the Magic Flute. And I remember the 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 animation style was uh, similar but different. Uh, it was yes. uh, there were no real other than Papa Smurf. I don't recall there being any. There was no jokey. There was no brainy. There was no. Oh, who was the tattooed one? The the the, um, the jock. I want to say hefty smurf. Hefty smurf. Yeah. No. Eight, <laughs> Maybe I could be eight, wrong. Eight, 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 <laughs> eight, eight, no. You know, I think that sounds pretty good. I think we'll go with hefty. And if not, hey, you, you all know who we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Ain't ain't no hefty in in the Smurfs and the Magic Flute. And me going right. This doesn't seem to be adding up to the Smurfs that I know. Yeah, because you didn't know, you probably didn't know that this was made before the animated Smurf series. Exactly. But it was brought in because the animated Smurf series was so popular. Exactly. Somebody probably said, hey, you know what? This other movie exists and it sort of looks like the animated series. Why don't we create an opportunity, a, another ratings opportunity? Hey, it, it, <laughs> right. It says Smurfs. Buy it. Right. <laughs> and it kids with. And kids would think that it's something new, like yourself. Right. You're like, okay, well, it sort of looks like my cartoon, but it sort of doesn't. But I can't figure out what's going on, So, but I'm going to watch anyway. Right. 
Exactly. But that is one of the things growing up where, you know, you know that something is off or wrong and no internet to explain things to you. And you're just sitting there scratching your head. And you could see, I mean, as a kid, you saw the difference. And it's not like, no, you're right. There's no internet. You can't go talk to a grown up about this. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, you're just, you're just lost and left to try to try to do the math. On your own. I, I learned Roman numerals uh, at some point as a kid just so I could figure out when the hell was this made. If they weren't nice, <laughs> if they weren't nice enough to put the date on it, you know, in an actual way that wasn't pompous and strange. Yeah, so that was, a, a, you know, Smurfs and a Magic Flute. You know, very funny, weird history behind that movie. But moving along, um, in 1981, some interesting things happened. NBC programming chief Fred Silverman, which uh, we will probably talk about a lot yep. in this podcast, yep, yep. a very successful programmer, uh, was visiting Aspen, Colorado, and with his daughter, Melissa, and bought her a Smurf doll. And immediately thought that the Smurfs would be a good addition to NBC's Saturday morning lineup. Right. You know, Fred Silverman was one of these guys. The reason he was a successful programmer was because he was able to sniff out whatever the latest and newest programming trend. He was able to. He he knew. He, he was able to to hear what was hot in the street. Right. He was able, exactly. Little girl, daughter. Hey, dad, at the mall. Buy buy me this. Mm-hmm. Oh, dollars towards that. Let's take a look at that. Hey. Right. Hmm. Uh, so negotiations happened and enter an executive that works with the Belgian Smurfs comic, a guy named, are you ready for it? I'm ready. Freddy, <laughs> Freddy, Monica Dam. Monica Dam. <laughs> Monica Dam. Monique Dam. Uh, you know, it's, it's, we know it's a French name. It's just, when I say it, I don't feel like my mouth is being French enough. You yeah. know, yeah. like it should be like, yeah. ma, 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 ma. Right. anyway, yeah, right. So, you know, we'll bring in a French specialist. Yeah, we're going to bring in a French specialist, uh, sure yeah, a linguist to help us uh, <laughs> <laughs> translate all of this for you good people. Mokendam. <laughs> that sounds like not. That sounds Farsi. <laughs> Russian. Mokendam. Right. Well, Freddy negotiated the contract between Pale, NBC, and Hanna-Barbera for the creation of the new Smurfs cartoon series. And, of course, Pale wanted the show to be as faithful as possible to his original comics. Right. And Mr. Freddy Monica Dam wanted it instead to be more mainstream and accessible. Right. Pale was, uh, well, that, that that's his art. He, yeah. was, he was just, you know, rightfully protective of uh, of what what others will do with it. The Smurfs were his baby. That was his creation. Right. And, and, you know, as far as he was concerned, a foreign animation studio was going to do or work on his creation. Right. Uh, Amer- I guess what? Americans, nonetheless, with their right. with your with your cheeseburgers and your giant cars. And Saturday morning was still, you know, limited animation. Right. So I'm sure part of those negotiations, which no one mentions, was that NBC and Hanna Barbera probably had to negotiate a higher episode per rate than was typically normal for that time. Right. I'm pretty sure the Smurfs got a pretty high cost wise episode order 
to, you know, make the animation a little better than what was being done at the time. Right. I was on a Hanna-Barbera Facebook page not too long ago, and one of the animators on that page was saying how Peo visited the Hanna-Barbera studios, you know, being very, very concerned and asking the animators questions as he should have. Oh, sure. About what's going on with the stories, what's going on with the animation. Right. This ex-animator that worked at Hanna-Barbera relayed this really interesting anecdote about Peo coming. And he said, you know, we weren't insulted by it at all. You know, it was just like, well, we were glad that he was there. But also at the same time, he wanted to assure Peo that, hey... Your property is in good hands. Right. We're Hanna-Barbera. Right. You know, we do great adaptions of other people's work. That was the impression that I got of the post. Right. But uh, he probably didn't care about that. Peo probably was like, well, look, I don't care about other people's stuff. This, <laughs> The Smurfs is mine. Right. Right. <laughs> well, now, it, is there any, was there any discussion or, or anything about why, or even if he would have been available uh, to be hired on himself? With Hanna-Barbera? I think there was probably a distance issue. You know oh, what I well, mean? I sure, feel like, you sure. know, he lives in Belgium and right. Hanna-Barbera Studios was in Burbank, I believe, at the time. Yeah, and, that's probably You it. know, maybe he didn't necessarily want to stick around. He, he, maybe he had other work to do right. or maybe he didn't. I think if the Smurfs was being made today, he probably would have said, okay, I'll move to the U.S. for six months. Right. Until this project is done, right. and then I can have my hands in every piece of the animation pie right. for the Smurfs. Right. You know, but back in those days, unless, you know, you're making a big budget animated movie or even something like James Bond, there wasn't a lot of money left over in the budget to actually have someone to house. To house, someone. yeah, right. To bring them back. It was more, okay, let's buy your, let's just buy the property and right, hope for the best. Right. Yeah. But, um, Mr. Freddie Machinadam, Monica Dam, Monica Dam. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like a freaking tongue twister. Monitam. He also became one of the executive producers of the Smurf series. And as I mentioned earlier, he, you know, helped with the negotiations, but these negotiations would later result in a legal dispute between Freddie and Peo. It gets uh, due to the division, you know, over the rights and the money and, you know, it gets sticky. It gets, it gets right. pretty sticky. Because, in, in, I mean, if you think about it, Dan, it's almost like if you are made one of the executive producers of the series, then you are entitled to a bigger piece of the pie. Right. You know, in terms of what you're going to get paid. Right. Probably. Now, I wasn't in the courtroom. <laughs> I'm just speculating right. here. <laughs> Versus... Just being a creator right. of the series. And I'm, sh- and I'm, I have a feeling that may have been what the dispute was about sure. or something you were talking about earlier, like manager versus artist. It could have been a dispute like that where, you know, Freddie was the manager or represented Pale. Yep. And no. he might have taken advantage of or classic, or, classic story. Yeah. The manager, uh, controlling the money, taking the bucks making the deals, sending the paperwork. It's the manager's job to know paperwork, to know the law, to know how to get to the money, how to maximize profit on the art. The artist who is not 
you know, geared towards business. Not, you know, I, I'd say that's impossible. You know, it happens. Yeah. So it is kind of like a classic, you know, artist versus manager. Exactly. Issue with the Smurfs cartoon. Because on the one hand, Peo needed Freddie to help negotiate. Right. The contract, you know, you had all these players. You had NBC, you had Hanna-Barbera, you had the comic company. Right. So I'm sure it wasn't an easy deal to put together. It wasn't a typical deal, that's for sure. Well, and the fact that you had the but- Atlantic Ocean in between uh, the parties, <laughs> and we're talking about 1981 here. Right. Pushing pushing the right. Smurfs would have been more than a full-time job. For sure. You know, it's just one of those things that happened, unfortunately. But when the show premiered, I mean, it became a huge rating success on NBC and uh, single-handedly took that network you know, from number three to number one right. and and created, you know, the halo effect. All of a sudden, NBC was like really in the game. Yep. And this is after, if you look at NBC's schedule in the late 1970s, they were not doing that great ratings wise. Um, there's a wonderful story that Lou Scheimer shared in his book about <laughs> getting a really nasty phone call by, <laughs> by an NBC executive complaining about why his uh, filmation show was not performing right. on NBC. And he goes, I don't understand. When you did the show on CBS, it performed great. But now that I have the franchise on my network, it's performing lousy. Right. And Lou said, well, the problem wasn't my property. The problem was that nobody was watching NBC. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, NBC. Smir- <laughs> hard, some, hard, some hard medicine there, but, you know, walking truth, right? But, but- Exactly. But the Smurfs remedied that issue Smurfs fixed really all that. quickly. Yes, yes. And it was a, a, a really big hit. And that's when uh, they brought in, which we talked about a little earlier, the Smurfs and the Magic Flute showed up, you know, around 1983. That's when that started coming around, confusing mm-hmm. all the kids. Right. And so it was dubbed in English, of course, for the American audience. And um, it was, of course, a pretty big ratings hit. Yeah, it says here it came out 83. I saw it, I think, in 85. And, okay. Uh, 84, 85. And by then, you know, the Smurfs Saturday morning had gone into syndication at that point right. Uh, right. In, in the local markets. And one of the confusing parts, things would be like uh, where I lived. My market, it would be a KCOP channel 13 would show mm-hmm. the Smurfs, you know, 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. And then uh, channel five KTLA, 2 p.m. on Sunday, Smurfs and the Magic Flute. What the hell's going on here? And it's just, oh, my God. I mean, and it's all about in the sort of Smurf and the Magic Flute. That's all about Johan and Pee Wee's journey. Joanne et Piroli. You know, right, the, the, right. It's really focused on those characters. It's the story of them and the Smurfs. You know, propel the plot. They're part of everything, but they're they are co-stars in in their in their own movie. <laughs> I, you I know. know, supporting players. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, if I was the first station you mentioned, I would have been freaking pissed that this other station got the rights to the movie, and I'm airing the reruns. Right, and I'm like, what the. You know, you have to wonder if there was even a first refusal from the first station. You know, sure. if they said, nah, we don't got it in our budget. We don't want it. We don't think it's going to do good ratings. Right. And this other station picked it up. Who the, who knows? Gosh, that could be an episode unto itself. Except just exploring <laughs> the, the dynamics and whatnot of, of your local your local broadcasters. 
Did you ever wonder why there are 24-hour kid networks? In my book, The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, I write about how Saturday morning became a competitive business and the proving ground for what would become the 24-hour kid network. My book covers the Big Bang of the 1960s explosion of high ratings to the early digital age of Saturday morning's last hurrah, the 1990s. You can purchase my book by going to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com and I will ship you a signed copy. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, episode title, A Call to Arms, originally published in February of 1992. Now that NBC has officially announced that they are dropping most of their animated programs next season, I'm looking forward to seeing what they're going to do next. I heard that NBC is planning to produce a Saturday morning version of the Today Show. Give me a break. What I think all the television networks need to do is go back to the basics between the watchdog groups and scared network executives who think that every script should be censored. It's a miracle that the, that children as well as young adults continue to watch anything on the schedule. Remember all that trouble CBS got into over Ralph Bakshi's Mighty Mouse smelling that flower? Yikes. Back during the golden era of Saturday morning television, Hanna-Barbera, Filmation Associates, DFE Productions, also known as the Patty Freeling, Sid and Marty Croft, Rankin Bass, and Jay Ward were the cream of the crop in terms of story, music, characterizations, and art. The animation was limited, but the content was always original and inventive. Among some of the best series were Superman, Space Ghost, Spider-Man, Georgia the Jungle, Wacky Races, The Archies, H.R. Puffin Stuff, Josie and the Pussycats, The Jackson Five, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids, Mission Magic, Star Trek the Animated Series, and finally, The Saturday Superstar, Saturday Superstar, Saturday Superstar Movie. Yeah, that theme made me really happy. Most of these television shows were produced with little or non-interference from any of the watchdog groups. Action for Children's Television didn't start to flex their political muscles and influence until the early 1970s. The networks were proud of their Saturday morning schedules and made sure their Saturday programming was promoted and showcased as much as their primetime counterparts. These morning promotions were always exciting and not restricted to the Saturday morning viewing audience. In fact, the Archies was so popular that the group made a guest appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show via video in primetime. The following season, when Sabrina the Teenage Witch was introduced on the Archie Comedy Hour in 1969, the origins of Sabrina's first meeting with the Archies was chronicled in a primetime hour-long special. As an added bonus, the Archies performed their number one hit record, Sugar Sugar. Archie's vocals were provided by Ron Dante. In my opinion, the promotions that run on Saturday morning these days are trite and uninspired. The only network that does a great job of promoting all of their children's programming is Fox Television. Fox promos are by far the best television commercials for kids on free TV. 
Thanks to The Simpsons and The Magnificent Beauty and the Beast, today's animators are given an opportunity to make the animation industry the best that it can be. In order to be respected more as an industry, there must be a cohesive call to arms industry-wide. This means an end to censorship and watchdog groups dumping their ideals on the future architects of the commercial animation field. On another note, I've always wondered who would be victorious if the veteran animators, artists, and writers took on the new school of artists, writers, and animators. Representing some of the new school members would be Deak Enterprises, Marvel Productions, Ruby Spears Enterprises, and Saban Productions. Although there is a mutual respect on both sides, the competition would be fierce. The winner of this creative competition would be the industry and the viewers, of course. So that's it, folks. That was my first newsletter. Just a couple of clarifications. So there was an incident on the new Mighty Mouse show that was produced by legendary animator Ralph Bakshi that showed Mighty Mouse uh, smelling a flower and people thought that he was smelling the flower and getting high off the flower. So the show was promptly canceled after, you know, generating high ratings and being a fan favorite. Another clarification from this newsletter was that when Sabrina was introduced in a primetime special, it was actually called Archie and His New Pals. And I think a little bit of the mix-up happened because there were several primetime specials, but in this particular one, the Archie sang a wonderful song called Get On The Line, sung by the awesome Ron Dante, whose vocals on that particular song were just awesome. And some of the uh, companies I mentioned, Deke Enterprises, Marvel Productions, you know, Marvel Productions are still around, Ruby Spears. Uh, the guys, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, are still around. Uh, they haven't done anything in the industry for a while. They do show up on end credits for a lot of the Scooby-Doo shows because they did, you know, co-create Scooby. It's just kind of interesting how uh, how new players have, have actually entered into the business and how some of the older players are no longer in the business. But if you have to think about it, this was back in 1992, so, you know, almost... 30 years ago when this newsletter was originally printed. So I hope you enjoyed my first newsletter and I hope you continue to listen to the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast. Where comedy and commentary collide. Thunder Talk brings a unique variety show style twist to the fandom podcast genre. We drop music from some of today's hottest up and coming artists. We discuss topics of social and political relevance and deliver our sideways take on the world at large. If stand up comedy, NPR, the Millennium Falcon, and classic MTV had a baby, it would be Thunder Talk. Thunder Talk is part of the ESO Network. Find us at thundertalk.org and on all podcasting platforms. Well, Dan, it looks like we've run out of time. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> 
So, folks, I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Next time on the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast, we are going to talk about the snorks. We're going to also talk about all the drama that went on between the Smurfs and the Snorks is worse than a bad soap opera. You just wouldn't believe that there was this much drama with a couple of TV shows during the uh, early 80s. Well, especially with how unassuming and catchy the Snorks theme song is. Do you remember the Snorks theme song? Come along uh, with the Snorks. Da, 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 something oh, yeah. along with the Snorks. Da, da, da. Mm-hmm. It's coming back to uh, me. How happy we'll be living <laughs> under the sea. Under the sea. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I remember that. It was it was a nice song, actually. Yeah, no, what, you, you know? would you would never guess that there was an entire ugly legal battle <laughs> going on with uh, mm-hmm. fa la 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 la. That was the Smurfs. Is that? I think that's the only. There were no words to the Smurfs. It's just no. There were no words. So if you ever wondered why there wasn't a Smurf Snork crossover, Dan and I are going to dig through all of that as well as continuing our great conversation on on the tiny trend that hit Saturday morning in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast, and we will see you next time. Over and out. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a co-production of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives studios and the Weirdos Workshop. To get a personalized signed copy of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives book, go to the Best Saturdays of Our Lives.com. This is Mark McRae signing off. <laughs>